Let us turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. I really wasn't, these, these, I don't plan the passages of Scripture to line up like this, but wow, what a passage for what we are going to look at uh, this morning as we study through four texts of Scripture. Let me read to you Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that who everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The word of the Lord. Uh, I didn't plan what I'm about to do. I didn't plan these uh, sermons. I think they just kind of happened. Um, I could tell you why I think they grew out of uh, several funerals. But <clears throat> we have been thinking about death in the past uh, two sermons. The, last, the first sermon was Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4, where we considered the wisdom of taking death to heart. And then last week in Psalm 116, we looked at the fact that the Lord preserves His godly ones from a premature death. Not until we get all our work done are we going to, is our appointment for death. We're going to get our work done first. Now, one of the questions that just haunts me is this. What about the times when we pray And we're seeking for God to deliver us, and we're not delivered. When we seek God to save us, and we are assaulted, we are, we find ourselves, we die because of murder. Some, Some beloved person in our lives is murdered. The apple of God's eye is touched, if you will. Uh, We could go and we could look at James. James died. James was put to death by Herod. And surely the church was praying for his deliverance just as they were praying for Peter to be delivered. Peter was delivered, but James was not. What about those times? What about those times when the apple of God's eyes touched? Uh, We're confronted with this every day. I think the Nashville incident is the one that really grips me the most. We have a woman who went to a school with an um, AR-15. She shoots her way into the school. She kills three adults. And she kills three nine-year-olds. These are undisputed facts. We can talk about the person. We can talk about her state of mind. We can talk about the government's inappropriate response. We can talk about the media's inappropriate response. But what do we do with this as Christians? What happens to this person? And how are we to think about these things? Well, first in this sermon, it's only 33 to 36 minutes. We can't touch every single thing. And I'm going to tell you, there's already one in my mind. I'm going, oh, I'm not even going to talk about that. Second, we have to acknowledge that in the world, God's... Precious ones do die in these ways. The apples of God's eye at times are killed or murdered. Jesus Christ was murdered. And 11 of the disciples were martyred for their faith. And if Jesus can be touched, 
and these other disciples of Jesus can be touched, then even we can be touched. Even the smallest and precious ones can be touched. We must acknowledge third that when the Lord, one of the Lord's precious ones is assaulted, that in his providence, this was his way of bringing them into his presence. We may not like that. I don't, I don't, I didn't enjoy the fact that God, that cancer is what took my father away from the earth. I did not like that, but that was God's appointment. But when one of these precious ones is removed from the, from the earth in this way, as we said last week, that beloved one has done all their work on earth. Their work on earth is done. And God brings them into his presence. Now, uh, again, I, I, pastorally speaking, we need to get these things in our hearts way before something happens. <laughs> we need to be eating and chewing on these things way ahead of time. Because I tell you, Job couldn't say the Lord gives and the Lord taketh away unless he had been chewing and meditating on these things way ahead of time. Fourth, even if the Lord's appointed way for one of his precious one is to, ones is to die in this way, it does not excuse the person who does this. When a person murders another person, a person is responsible for their actions. When a person takes and touches the apple of God's eye, the Lord will not permit it without severe judgment. And so what I want to do is I want to give you four texts and let's learn from these four texts what happens and how should we think about it when God allows one of the apples of his eye to be touched. First passage is Matthew five twenty one and 22. And it's about the sixth commandment. Jesus is dealing here with thus, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. And there is an inadequate interpretation he deals with here. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So Jesus is not disagreeing with Moses. Jesus is disagreeing with the scribes and Pharisees who have read into this only one part of what was taught in the Old Testament. Yes, this is what was told to the ancients, but that's not all they taught. That's not all this in the Old Testament, but that's all these guys were, were thinking about. They were teaching that only somebody who commits hand murder. Now, guys, I'm going to give you some, some, some bodily outline here today. Hand murder. The person who commits hand murder is the only one who's guilty. That's what they are saying. This is an inadequate interpretation. And Jesus is going to get straight to the right interpretation. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. It's not just a person who has the murder, murder in their hand. It's not just the person with the gun in their hand that's guilty of murder, but it's the person who's angry in their heart that's guilty. And then he goes on, he says, And whoever says to his brother, You, good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever uses his mouth and says, You, fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. This is the right interpretation. It's not just the hand, but it's the anger in the heart. And it's not just the hand and the anger in the heart, but it's the anger that comes out of the heart in tongue murder. Abusive speech and heart murder, and hand murder. Jesus forbids all murder, not just with the AR-15. 
He forbids. See, this woman, she never got to the hand apart from the anger in the heart. And not dealing with the anger in the heart, we see it flowing out in the social media. And then from the social media, it flowed out into the hands. But what we have to understand is that if it's only in our heart, if it's only in our heart, and it never makes it into our mouths, and it never makes it into our hands, we are worthy or guilty enough to go, he says, into a fiery hell. We have to contemplate that it takes what happens when we are full of angry, angry passions in our hearts. All of us. All of us have to admit that we've been filled with sinful, angry passions. And whether they ever work themselves out in our tongues or in our hands. That we are guilty before God and we need, let me put it this way, we need the person preaching this sermon to save us from this, these sins. Let's look at the second text. The second text is in Luke 16. I hope these are texts that, that, that you can even remember and see in your own mind. Look at Luke 16 verse 22. Hold your finger there. There's story here is between Luke 16, 22. The story is between a rich man and a poor man. We don't know the rich man's name, but we know the poor man is named Lazarus. And they're both living side by side. And the rich man, he has purple clothing. He lives in fine garments. He has joy and splendor all his life. Um, as somebody would say, he's living his best life now. Right? He's got everything. He's in a gated community. And he's, in a wonderful, he's living a wonderful life. And right outside the rich man's gate is this poor man named Lazarus. He's covered with sores and he longs, he hopes for just some crumbs that come off this rich man's table so that he can eat them and the dogs are licking his sores. Look at verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Where is he at? Look at the next verse. In Hades. Now, sometimes Hades means place of the dead. Sometimes it means hell. He is in hell. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment there, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you receive your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm. It's fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Let me ask you a question. Why is the rich man in Hades? Why is he in torment and in agony? And why is the poor man in Abraham's bosom? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit here, but I don't think I'm far off, okay? I'm going to argue... This man later on tells Abraham to send Lazarus from the dead and to tell his brothers, don't come here. And he says, no, no, he ha they have the law and the prophets. That's not enough, he says. That's not enough. You've got to send a man back from the dead. 
This man had not enough time in his life. He's so preoccupied with his stuff. He's so preoccupied with his clothes and his joy and his food. He's so preoccupied with that that he can't be preoccupied with the law of God that says love God and love neighbor. You with me? And so he doesn't love God and he certainly doesn't love neighbor. And the sixth commandment, what does it say? Let me tell you what it says. What does it, what does it require? Thou shalt not commit, thou shalt not commit murder. And here's what Shorter Catechism 68 says. What is required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. This man has no desire to preserve the life of the man outside his gate. He didn't love God. He sure wasn't going to love his neighbor. Because if you love God, you're at least going to try to love your neighbor. Now, you may not do it perfectly. None of us do, do we? But this guy is not loving him at all. This guy, I say to you, this guy, we look in our passages of Scripture and we see in Matthew 5 that we are not to commit hand murder. We're not to commit tongue murder. We're not to commit the murder inside of our hearts. And this is teaching us that we are to preserve the life of our neighbor right outside our door. So we add this to our data here. What is the fiery hell? Well, he calls it Hades. He calls it torment. He calls it agony. It's a conscious condition. Here's our rich man. He sees Abraham's bosom. He sees this man. He sees Lazarus. He sees all of these things. It's a conscious condition. Torment not only is a conscious condition, but torment is an eternal condition. He can't escape. There's a, there's a chasm fixed there, and you can't come over here, and we can't come over there. And finally, it's a miserable condition. He sees a better place. He sees comfort. I was talking to my friend the other day, and he has um, Lou Gehrig's disease, and he's not doing well. And we, he, said, he said, what is hell like, Mark? And he was telling me what he thought. I said, I told the men yesterday, I said, hell, at the end of this service, you're going to get a benediction. And hell is not having the face of God. Having the face of God turn away from you forever. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. No more face. No more face for this rich man. Miserable. Miserable. So we end with a warning. There's nothing wrong with fine clothes. I'm not going to argue. Wear fine clothes, folks. There's nothing wrong with plenty of fine food. Have as much as you want. But what's wrong is being so preoccupied with it that you forget God and forget your neighbor. And because you forget God and forget your neighbor, you end in torment. The person who finds themselves in hell is not just a woman with an assault rifle. But it's the person who does not preserve the life of his neighbor. Now, I want you to turn to, a, I think, a very odd passage. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and, you know, we're getting, uh, they're getting ready for the great day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And I want you to start with me in verse, uh, verse 23 of Acts chapter 1. Verse 23 of Acts chapter 1. And it says, they put forward two men. Now, they're getting ready to vote on who replaces Judas. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. 
And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy, chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So the context here is Judas has betrayed Jesus and they're going to replace uh, Judas, his ministry and apostleship with somebody else. They're going to choose. They're going to let the Lord choose. Judas betrayed Jesus. In a little bit above there in verse 16 through 19, I'm trying to conserve my time. But in verses 16, 16 through 19, the psalmist foretells the betrayal. And Judas is the one who does the betraying for 30 pieces of silver. He guides all the, the men over to Jesus, kisses Jesus, and now they know who to arrest. And so following his devilish betrayal, he's filled with remorse. And we all know that he goes out and he hangs himself. In Matthew chapter 5, we see hand murder, tongue murder, heart murder. Guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. In Luke 16, we see a man who does not preserve his neighbor's life. And he goes into torment. And here we see Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, an innocent man into the hands of someone else to do the, do the dirty work for him. He goes to his own place. What does that mean? He goes to his own place. Well, it certainly speaks of the penalty that Judas is going to receive for touching the apple of God's eye. Judas sinned. Judas knew exactly what to do after he sinned. Judas knew the gospel. Judas knew Jesus Christ. Judas knew that he should weep himself back just like Peter did after his denial in repentance all the way back to Jesus Christ. But he did not do it. And because of this, we see that Judas goes to his own place. What does that mean? He goes to his own place. Verse 25 says he has a place. It was a place of ministry. It was a place of apostleship. He's seated with all those other men. They had no idea this was going to happen. And now he has another place that he goes to. He goes to his own place. And John tells us in John 17, 12, that Judas was the son of of perdition. The word perdition means ruin. It means destruction. It means perishing. Judas went to his own place. Fiery hell in one passage. Agony and torment and Hades in the next passage. And now we're being told that Judas goes to his own place. A place of perdition. What do we learn? That he is going to a place where his sin and his punishment are fit for one another. What do we say? The punishment fits the crime. So each wicked person who breaks the sixth commandment, whether it's by the hand, with the tongue, in the, or in the heart, whether it's not preserving our neighbor's life or betraying an innocent friend to another person to do the dirty work, each man will go to the fiery hell. Second, we learn from this text regarding Judas that the hell or the torment to which wicked murderers go is a particular place. His own place. And that teaches us in the third part point, which is this. There are degrees of divine punishment in hell. Jesus addresses this in Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. Remember that passage, I think it's a parable. He says, there's a slave who knows his father's will, the master's will. 
and he knows exactly what he's supposed to do, but he doesn't go out and do it. And so what happens to him is he receives many blows. He knows the Father's will, and he receives many blows because he does not do it. But then there are men, there are slaves who do not know their master's will. And though they do many, many bad things, because they don't know the master's will, they receive fewer blows. Let's see if we can clarify just for a moment. Let's say that all, listen, you guys, so many of you, you know the truth. You know the master's will, don't you? You have brought your children to be baptized in water. And you have said, I will... I will nurture them and I will teach them and I will tell them who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and you will explain to them and you will talk to them. And they know you have been taught to repent and to believe and to lead a holy life. You've been taught the whole wide of God's will for you. You're supposed to glorify God and you're supposed to enjoy Him forever. And if you go, go with all that will in your mind and you don't do it, many blows. There will be a fiery place Torment, take the passages and remember them. There will be a place, many blows. Your friend who doesn't grow up in the church, your friend who doesn't grow up knowing the will of God, your friend who doesn't grow up in the visible church, doesn't know as much of the will of God as you do. Fewer blows. To be clear, both people are in hell. But hell is not the same for everybody. Judas went to a place of punishment where his punishment fit his sin. Think about his punishment. Think about what that man knew. Think about how he sat with Jesus over and day after day after day. He preached. He taught. He was with him. He sinned against all this knowledge and squandered it all for money. He's in a bad place. Many blows. What happens to somebody who touches the apple of God's eye? One person, six persons or more. We commit hand murder. We commit tongue murder. We commit heart murder. We can not preserve the life of our brother. We can betray a brother who's innocent into somebody's hands. And if we don't come to Jesus like he should have, like Peter did, then we're going to be separated from God. We won't have His face. Justice in God's court will be done. I think we need to remember that. You need to, positively, you need to remember that. I walk around telling myself this all the time. Justice will be done by God. We may have some form of justice here on this earth. Men can only do it so well. But when, God, when the court of God comes around, it will be absolutely perfect. He will do what is right. He will do what is good. And He will do it all the time. And you and I, we need to have our sins under the blood of Jesus. Lest we find ourselves punished with many blows. Well, let's look at one more passage. First Peter 3, 18. I'm going to turn this around in a minute. So you don't worry that it's just painfully difficult. But look at 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Verse 18, fourth text. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison which once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, 
that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, verse 19 is a really controversial passage. Let me read it again. In which also he, referring to Christ, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. There's so many interpretations of this. (laughs) Here's one interpretation. One says that Christ, after he died and before he rose from the dead, that he went and he set people who were in Hades free from their bondage there. The believers are set free from their bondage there, free from the place of death. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation says Christ went to the prison to give rebellious spirits a second chance to repent and believe. That's that's another interpretation. Another interpretation says Christ went to the prison to proclaim his victory over all the condemned souls in hell. So let me give you three points here. Here's what we're going to do. Let's talk about Christ descended into hell and what it doesn't mean. Let's talk about what Christ descended into hell and what it does mean. Let's talk about what the passage means. Okay? That's where we go. Christ descended into hell. We, We just sang it, didn't we? What does that mean, Christ descended into hell? Well, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. We've kind of talked about this last few weeks. Christ descended into hell does not mean he descended into hell to set Old Testament believers free from bondage there. How do we know that? Well, last few weeks we talked about Jesus talking to a penitent thief on the cross. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today I'm going to set you free from your bondage. No, he says, today you're going to be with me where? In paradise. So when Jesus' body is separated from his soul, his soul is in paradise. And the penitent thief is in, with his soul is in paradise. And guess where poor man Lazarus is? He's in Abraham's bosom. That's paradise. They're in comfort. There's, there's, that, there's that paradise right there. They, there's no descent into a, the prison or hell. Second, as we think about this, there are no verses in the Bible that supports that Christ descent into hell to proclaim victory over those who are condemned. Third, there's when Christ descended into hell, we don't it does not mean that he descended into hell to give second a second chance to people who are there. There's no second chance to repent and believe. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed unto man to die once and then to face the judgment. And when we stand before God, we are going to be judged for everything we did on this planet, not for anything we did after we die. That's clearly taught in the Bible. Well, what does it mean for Jesus or for Christ to descend into hell or to this prison? Well, it speaks of three different things. It speaks of the fact of what, what happened to Jesus before the cross. The agonies of hell that Jesus went to to before the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating great drops of blood. He's pleading with God to take this cup away from him, the cross. And this is part of the agony that he's in. This is his descent into hell. This is what we mean when we say this. His descent into hell is marked also by his body on the cross. When we watch movies, if you watch a movie, that's a, that's a debatable thing. We won't talk about that right now, whether you watch a movie with Jesus on the cross. But listen, the thing they show is nothing more than the brutality of what happened to his body. This is talking about the agonies that he went through in his soul. The agonies that he went through in his soul as his soul was up against the unmitigated fury of God's wrath. 
And then the third thing this talks about is this. The larger catechism puts it like this. That when that soul and body were separated, that is part of the descent. Now, he's not in misery. His soul, his soul is in paradise. But part of the descent is for that body and that soul to be separated. Never meant to be in the first place, right? Death was never supposed to be. That's not God's purpose. And when, when everything is restored, the body and the soul are going to be restored back together. So, what does this mean now? That's what it means for Christ to descend into hell. What does this passage teach? Well, let's talk about it. Christ, in His Spirit, descended down and He preached. It wasn't by personal appearance. (laughs) It wasn't by personal appearance, but it was through the instrumentality of a man named Noah that He preached the gospel. Jesus is preaching the gospel through Noah. Did y'all hear that? Jesus is preaching the gospel through Noah. Oh, Old Testament. What's the Bible always about? What's the answer? J-E-S-U-S. So in the days of Noah, we got a guy named Noah, and Jesus is saying, I'm preaching through Noah. I'm preaching about salvation, and here's what you're going to be saved from. There's a judgment coming. It's watery. In 120 years, water is going to come up from under the earth. It's going to come from out of the clouds and the whole earth will be washed away of all its wickedness. And we see in 2 Peter 2, 5, Noah was a preacher of righteousness in his day. Genesis 6, 3 says this, The Spirit of God was striving with men at this time, but He would not strive forever. Yet, yet 120 years and the earth will be washed away. That's what he was preaching. Every time he's every time he's sawing a piece of wood, every time he's hitting a nail, every time preaching, every time working, he is preaching that there's salvation only in the ark that we're building with all its three floors and its 18 inches at the top with the air vents and all the rest, right? Go to the ark and go visit it in what, Tennessee? You can go visit in Tennessee, right, Mike, Michael? And so... So you, you, have, you have this place of salvation and the only way to be saved is to get into it. The only way. And the building of the ark represents the patience of God. It's the patience of God, right? 120 years of patience. And then at the end of the construction of the ark, The door is closed. It's shut by God Himself and everybody shut in is safe and everybody who's shut out, not safe. The water starts to fall. Christ descends and preaches to the spirits in the day of Noah who are now in prison. That's what Peter is saying. So what we learn here in this text is that Christ is preaching to spirits in the days of Noah, not by a personal appearance but through the instrument of a man. And the same thing is going on today. Christ uses men to preach the gospel. Noah said, yet 120 years and judgment is coming. Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the minister is to say, there's a fiery judgment coming. When all men who are not in the safe place called the ark of Christ will be overthrown. So He gives us time to repent. And one day all the preaching will stop and all those who are not in Christ will experience the wrath of God. Are you in the ark with Noah? Well, let me conclude as we turn to the Lord's Supper. 
Think back about our, our passages. We have fiery hell. We have Hades and torment. We have the place that he goes to that's for his own appointment, his own place for Judas. And now we have a prison. You see any connections? Prison is a place you can't get out of. Prison is a place of punishment. Prison is a place for the disobedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the second death. What happens when one of God's precious ones, when a godly person is assaulted? Well, he goes to heaven. He gains Jesus Christ. But the one who committed the deed is responsible. He or she has committed that deed and is responsible. And so we see that whether it's with a rifle in our hands or with murderous intent in our heart or tongues ripping another person apart, betraying a brother who's not guilty or just simply not paying attention to somebody outside the door, that these are folks worthy of a fiery hell. Sinners, there's something terrible from which you need to be saved. And Christian, there's a place from which you have been saved. And it's a terrible place. And as we come to the Lord's Supper tonight, think about the words that we say. On the night Jesus was betrayed. We just, we just went through that. Jesus institutes the supper the night He was betrayed. And you and I, we have been saved from a dreadful place. Conscious punishment. Eternal, inescapable punishment. We've been saved from that place because Jesus went to that place for us. Was separated from God for us. And we now, because of His obedience and because of His suffering, by faith we have His obedience imputed to us, we have His sufferings imputed to us, and we stand before God in right standing before His eyes. We've been saved from something terrible to something grand. Something grand. Today we do this meal by faith. Today we eat bread and we drink cups of wine by faith, with Jesus giving these things to us. But in the future, it's grand. It's even more grand than today. What's, what is it? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the marriage supper of the Lamb, you and I, we're not going to be doing it by faith. We're going to be doing it by sight. Jesus is going to be in front of us. And what does He say of Himself? I am the true bread. And I am the true drink. I'm the true wine. And we sit with Him. And it's grand. It's grand. The table this morning is open to all of His disciples. It's open to all of those who've been baptized, who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and who are those who uh, submit to the government of the church. Are you overseen by a session of elders? Does this define you? As we prepare this morning, we are to examine our hearts. Paul tells us to do this. We might eat and drink in a worthy manner. So examine your hearts for faith. Examine your hearts for repentance and for a new obedience. Now, you say, Pastor Wheat, my obedience is kind of not very good. Um, it's not perfect. Well, do you need Jesus? <laughs> do you need a Savior? Is that why you come? Do you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone? right standing with God, well then you're ready to eat. Don't 
Avoid this table because you say, I'm not perfect. It's, this is not for perfect people. This is for people who need a Savior. This is for people who need to eat from Jesus' hand and drink from His hand and be nourished for the days ahead. So let us eat and let us drink and let us be reinvigorated this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the opportunity to think about maybe sometimes things we don't want to think about. About a fiery place, a place of consciousness, a place that's inescapable and eternal, a place that's full of torment and agony. These are things we don't enjoy thinking about, but these are things from which we have been saved. We've been saved from what our sin deserves. We've been saved to Jesus Christ. We've been saved to be loved by you. We've been saved for the Holy Spirit to teach us wonderful truths throughout this life. And one of those truths is we can sit down and we can eat and drink with Jesus today and prepare to do this as we do this. We're preparing to do what we will do throughout all eternity. Eat and drink with our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you'll set these elements apart from their common and sacred use. We ask, Lord, that we might eat for your glory and for the good of our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.